Good morning. Have a seat. If we haven't met, my name is Brad Cheney. I'm one of the pastors here along with Brian Douglas. And I'm really, I am excited. I'm usually excited to preach on Sunday mornings. I'm especially excited to preach on this passage because what we have before us this morning is, you know, arguably the greatest thing that the Apostle Paul ever said about Jesus Christ. Um, Here's how one author summarized Jesus' biography Uh, Just uh, as an introduction, Um, he grew up 2,000 years ago in a small town, apprenticed as a carpenter's son. He never traveled more than a few hundred miles from home, never married or had any children, never held any political office. He never ran a large company. He didn't make a lot of money. He never wrote a book. He he never won a Super Bowl. But he is the most influential and significant person in the history of the world. More songs have been sung to him. More paintings have been painted of him. More books have been written about him than anyone who has ever lived in the history of the world. And friends, what what that means is is, uh, we, we can't think too much about him. We can't think too frequently of him Or we can't think thoughts that are too high of him. You just can't think about him enough. It's impossible. Because of all that's written of him right here. His first name is Jesus. And that's the Hebrew derivative of the word Joshua. Which means the Lord is our salvation. He is God's salvation to mankind. And his last name is not Christ. Uh, It's Christ is a title that means Messiah. When he walked on this earth 2,000 years ago, they called him Jesus of Nazareth because of the small town and the humble beginnings he came from. But now that he occupies the throne of heaven, we call him what we called him at the beginning of the service, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen? Let me just say this. On most Sundays, you as a church, you do a good job of listening to me preach. Um, you pay attention for the most part. There's a few of you who you'll just talk to the person sitting next to you and you'll, you'll play on your, your phone. Or could, could I just, could I honestly ask you to give me your undivided attention today? Because what I'm going to say to you today is the most important thing you will ever hear in your life. Like the most important. Like calculus does not compare to this tomorrow. Um, this is, this is it. And what is set before you today is the most important question that you will ever answer with your life. Because the way you answer this question not only determines the course of your life, it, it determines your eternal destiny. So it, it makes sense to listen to that, right? <laughs> it's a big deal. And here's the question. It's a question that Jesus asks you. Who do you say I am? You ask a Mormon friend, who is Jesus Christ? And they will tell you, he is the product of the sexual union between Elohim and the Virgin Mary. They will tell you that for a time, God the Father and Mary were husband and wife, and like any other husband and wife, they conceived and gave birth to a firstborn child, Jesus. They also conceived and gave birth to another brother. His name was Lucifer, the devil. Jesus and Lucifer were brothers. It's kind of funny how the Mormon missionaries who knock on your front door, they don't tell you that piece of information, do they? No. Who is Jesus? If you ask a Muslim friend that question, they'll say, he's a prophet of God. He's 
He is a, pro- a great prophet like Abraham and Moses and Isaiah. He is uh, an exalted prophet. But of course, he's not the most important prophet. For the most important prophet lived 500 years after Jesus lived. His name is Muhammad. Uh, and he is the, the one who brought us Allah's revelation. Uh, we know that Jesus, according to Muslims, that he did not die on the cross, but God, God uh, rescued him and took him up into heaven. And so because Jesus denied, did not die on the cross, then there is no atonement and there is no resurrection. You ask a Jehovah's Witness, who is Jesus? And you find out this answer, that prior to Jesus coming to earth, he was the archangel Michael. He was a creature, an exalted creature, the greatest of all creatures, but merely a creature. The first product of Jehovah's creative work. And when he was born of the Virgin Mary, he left his angelic nature behind and became fully and exclusively a human, which means that he is certainly, absolutely, entirely not God. But who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? 52% of Americans say that Jesus is God. And then in the very same survey, 50, I think it's 8% of Americans say that he committed sins just like any other man. Like Americans are schizophrenic when it comes to Jesus. They don't, they don't know who Jesus is. But here's what Paul says he is. And again, this is the most important thing you will ever hear in your life. These words. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope that is held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So immediately, okay, you look at the bulletin and you see how I've written it. Immediately you notice that this is a poem. Or we think it most likely is uh, the earliest hymn, one of the earliest hymns that was ever sung in a Christian church. It's a hymn of Christ. And whether this hymn was written originally by Paul or or this is just poetic prose that is written by Paul. This was something that was familiar to the people. And it, I mean, it just has such an exalted vision of Jesus Christ. And what we're going to do is we're going to go through each statement of this poem. And I've got a lot of points this morning, so just stick with me. Because um, every one of the points is a hallelujah moment. I'm really, 
Like, it's almost a shame that we do church sitting down, and we do preaching sitting down, and you, you sit and listen as you're sitting down, because every one of these points is something, it should make you want to stand up on your seat and shout hallelujah. If we were in a black church this morning, like, we would be dancing in the aisles. Every one of these points, because these, these are the greatest things. These are the greatest things. Number one, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the mirror image of the Father. Jesus reflects the Father back to us perfectly and correctly. Um, When we see Jesus, we see Jesus' love. We read about Jesus' love in John 13. When we see his love, we see the Father's love. When we see his forgiveness, we see the Father's forgiveness. When we see his justice, we see God's justice. Um, He mirrors it back to us. I'm assuming that every one of us got up this morning and we got out of our bed. We went downstairs, had a cup of coffee to get us going, or at least most of us did. If you didn't, I don't know how you wake up. (laughs) You got your coffee, you got your breakfast, you went back into the bathroom you're going to shower, hopefully, and get yourself ready and, and dress for church. There was something hanging on the wall in your bathroom this morning that it was either a blessing or a curse to you. If your first name is Brad and your last name is Pitt, it's a source of countless blessings. What am I talking about? You're talking about your mirror. And your mirror said something to you. Your, your mirror, it did give you an accurate picture of yourself, for better or for worse in my case. Jesus is God's mirror. God the Father is mirrored to us in the Son. God the Father is invisible, and several biblical passages make it clear that God the Father has not been seen, will not be seen, he cannot be seen, the Holy Spirit cannot be seen. Why can they not be seen? Because they are invisible. But God has revealed himself to us through his son. Um, You know how the long history of humanity and religion, humanity wants to be able to see their gods. We always, we want to see our God. And so what do we do? We create these little icons, these images, these graven images, these idols. And that was the very thing that God said in the second commandment, you must not do. He said, you shall not make for yourself any image of things in heaven above or the earth below or the waters under the earth. He says, you must not bow down to them or worship them. Why? Because none of those things correctly portray me. I I am not like a golden calf. I am not like a sun, moon, and stars. I, I am not like those things. But don't you see, God gave the second commandment anticipating that one day he would send his image into this world that would perfectly portray him. And what have we done so far this morning? We've essentially bowed down and worshiped that image. I heard a pastor uh, say he he invited one of his non-Christian friends to church on Sunday morning and his He asked him afterwards, what did you think of the service? And the friend said, you know, I was just really surprised how much you guys talked about and sung about Jesus. Well, what did you think we were going to (laughs) do? Because we're bowing down to the image that is truly the image of God. In John 14, 9, Philip said, 
what are we supposed to do? We, we, we've never seen God. And then remember what Jesus replies. He says, Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. During the Second World War, Thomas Torrance, who later became a very important, influential theologian in Edinburgh, he was serving as a chaplain in the British Army, and he came upon a soldier dying in the field of battle. He knelt down and he bent over the wounded soldier, and the soldier looked up into his eyes and said, "Padre, is God is God really like Jesus?" And he he quote he said, "quote I, I whispered down into this his ear as I prayed, he is exactly like Jesus." He's exactly like Jesus. So here's the thing. If you're trying to figure out God and you are, you're confused and you don't know where to begin, if you're confused by philosophy and you don't know what to do about ideology and you don't know where to, where to begin, you start with Jesus. You focus on Jesus. You research Jesus because everything that can be known about God is found in his son Jesus. Amen? There's going to be a lot of amens in this sermon, so just be prepared. Number two, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. One of the things that we hold as, uh, uh, as biblical um, Trinitarians is, uh, is simply this axiom. The axiom that there was never a time when God was not a father. There was never a time when God was not a father. Well, there's then, of course, it has to be a corollary to that. There was never a time when God was not a son, right? Because you can't be a father if you don't have a son, and you can't be a son if you don't have a father. One of the, the great controversies in the early church was, is Jesus Christ a created being? Is he a creature? And they went to this passage and said, at least the Arians said, hey, look, he, he has been created. He is, he is the firstborn creature. And, um, and the church replied, no, no, no. He's not, he's not born that way because if he's a creature, that means that there was a time when God was not a father. And if you think in terms of eternity, if there was a time when the son was created, then there was an eternity before that moment of creation when God was not a father. That cannot be. Instead, what the, 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 ch- the church came up with, um, the language of the church was that he is the eternally begotten son of God. He's begotten, not made. He's not, a, he's not uh, made um, like uh, a creature. He's begotten eternally, which is very confusing language, but it simply means that there's never been a time when the father was not a father and the son was not the son. Now here, when Paul talks about Jesus being the firstborn over all creation, he's talking about a very common idea in the Bible that the firstborn son has all of the priority. The firstborn son, he, he's the one who, he gets the family inheritance. He gets the family estate. He gets the family name. He gets the, fam, the first place in everything. So when Paul says Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, he is saying by, by right, Jesus comes first above everything else in all of creation. So what does that mean practically? You know, say someone is, maybe you, maybe you're struggling with an enslaving sin, a sin that you just cannot get free of. And oftentimes, 
uh, in our circles, in, in our day and age, that sin is pornography. Um, somebody's struggling with pornography, and in their heart, they acknowledge that, that this is it's a problem with my heart, and it's a problem with my relationship with God and my connection to God. It's a problem with trying to find false intimacy somewhere else. It's a, it's a problem with self-centeredness and unbelief. It's all this stuff wrapped up, wrapped up together. It's a heart issue. But, but more than anything else, it's a Jesus issue. It's a Jesus issue. Because for the Christian, Jesus must be first in everything. He must be first in our relationships, first in our identity, first in our family, first in our finances, first with our businesses, first with our eyes. Like everything gets screwed up in our lives when Jesus comes second. It never works when you put him second because he's the firstborn of over all creation and nothing will get straightened out Nothing will get your porn problem, your, your greed, your lust, your none of that will get straightened out if Jesus is not in the first position. Because he's the firstborn over all creation. Amen? Number three, verse 16. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or rulers or powers or authorities, all things have been created through him and, and for him. I've heard some people ask the question before, you know, where did the universe come from? The uh, 19th century philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, he, you know, so famously came up with the epitaph that God is dead. Nietzsche spoke of what he called the reality of re- eternal recurrence. Drawing from Greek philosophy, Nietzsche went on to say that the universe does not have a beginning and the universe does not have an end, but the universe is eternal There was never a time when the universe did not exist. And this is kind of the dominant philosophy out there today, which is what Carl Sagan picks up on when he says that the universe was all that ever was, that all all that there ever has been, or all that there ever will be. But but how how did life, as we know it, on this third rock from the sun, get to be, according to those guys? How did it happen? It just happened by chance. (laughs) It happened because the cosmic roulette wheel came up black instead of red. Um, is that really, is, do you find that answer like, satisfying to your soul? The answer that Paul gives is Jesus created it all. Everything you see in this visible world, everything, everything that you love, your dog, you love your dog, thank Jesus. <laughs> Fantastic. He made him or her. Um, everything that you love, the sunsets, the beaches, the, the Boise River, all of it. Our lives are supposed to be punctuated constantly with these words. Thank you, Jesus. You made this, all of it. Uh, and one of the things, really, our, act, our action of, of missions and evangelism that um, Jim was talking about earlier is if we, we just go, we come up alongside somebody and say, do you love this world? Well, let me introduce you to the artist. Do you love the music? Then let me introduce you to the one who wrote it. Do you love the painting? Let me show you the artist. That's his name. I know his name. I know his name. And his name is Jesus. That's what we say. Amen. 
You notice here how Paul breaks up the created world in two categories. All things that are seen and then all things that are unseen. I've mentioned so far in the book of Colossians how the Colossians had a big, they had a big deal with angels going on. They were very interested in angels and demons. Um, we don't think much in those categories today. We think that that's kind of an archaic idea. But let me just illustrate to you uh, what a big deal it, it actually is. And I'll illustrate it from a story in one of the Gospels. Jesus Christ, you remember, he's sailing across the Sea of Galilee one day, and he came onto the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. He stepped off of the boat, and he met a man who was demon-possessed. It was in this desolate region called the uh, Gerizines, and this guy was just completely nuts. And Jesus Christ, he commanded the demons to come out of this man. And do you remember what the demons replied? They said, they said we are, how many were in that guy? We are a legion. How many, how many was a legion? A legion was 5,000 soldiers in a Roman garrison. Do you realize what that means? Did you realize that, number one, that demons could be that small? <laughs> you could stick 5,000 of them in one human being. And did you realize, number two, that Satan had so many of them that he could spare 5,000 in one poor chap? See, what's going to happen at the end, the end of history, when the veil is pulled back, we're going to see this world is crawling with angels and demons. Um, they're everywhere. And here Paul, he speaks specifically about thrones, rulers, authorities. In other words, he says that there are demons behind even the form of government in their world today, or in their world then, in our world today. Uh, he said, do you realize that there's a demon behind the Caesar that's on the throne? Um, and when perfect love entered into the world, it was the thrones, rulers, and authorities that crucified perfect love. And they thought they had beat him. And we know how that turned out now, don't we? All right, number, what am I on? Number four, Jesus is the eternal sustainer. He's the eternal sustainer. Let's do a quick little thought experiment. Okay, this, pa- this bulletin is made of paper. Paper is made of trees. Trees are you know, carbon, whatever. I, I, it's been a long time since I've done chemistry. Uh, trees are made of chemical compounds. Compounds are made of molecules. Uh, molecules are made of atoms. Atoms are made of a nucleus orbited by electrons and an atomic nucleus that's built of protons. And every proton is made of of what? Like inside the proton lies this deep unsettling truth that there's kind of nothing there. (laughs) Like there's, there's almost just an invisible glue. So this is a little science nerdy, but I think you can follow it. Imagine you're flying into a proton on a glider. Like you'd be falling through the Earth's atmosphere. The uppermost atmosphere of the proton is a thin layer of virtual quark and anti-quark pairs. They form a shield for what lies below. As you fall past them, the atmosphere gets denser and denser. The clouds thicker and thicker. Your glider is struck with increasing frequency and force by flashes of color lightning. These are called gluons. 
And and then perhaps four-fifths of the way through your descent, you emerge from the cloud cover. Here the riot is calmer. The lightning bolts have disappeared. They have fused to a continuous sheet, and somehow you feel at once featherlight and immune from all forces. You are near the center of the proton now, utterly trapped as you fall toward the asymptote of utter freedom. And what you are finding, what is at the center of it all? Not much. (laughs) What holds it all together? Not much. When you get to the center of the proton, you find that there's kind of nothing much there. What holds it all together? It's verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Kids, did you, have you learned, I know you, okay, little kids, let me have your eyes, little kids calling the pulpit. Um, you remember learning this song? Um, oh, oh, what's the song? What's the song? <laughs> He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole, go ahead. He's got the whole wide world in his hands. Do you know what the Apostle Paul is saying? Is like at the center of everything, what is holding it together, mysteriously, somehow, it is Jesus' hands. Because in him, all things hold together. One day we're going to figure out the science of it, uh, and it's going to blow our minds that there is the hidden hand of Jesus somehow holding it all together. Number five, he is the head of the body of the church. We, uh, as pastors, so often hear people say words along, along, of these effects. You know, I love Jesus, but I just can't stand the church. Um, hear it all the time. You know, I, I love Jesus, but I have I've given up on the church. You realize, though, if Paul's image is correct, that's like looking at Jesus and saying, I love your face. I hate your body. You know, it's like saying, I, I love you and we can be bros, but I hate your wife. Like any husband, any husband knows that if you talk badly about his wife, if you diss his wife, he's, he doesn't feel good about that because a husband is devoted to his wife in a covenant relationship of love. And when we speak ill of the church and say, I like you, I don't like your bride, that just doesn't work. You think of all of the one another passages in the Bible. Let me read these just really quickly. Uh, Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. Romans 12, 10, outdo one another in showing honor. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, comfort and agree with one another. Galatians 5, 13, serve one another. Galatians 6, 2, carry one another's burdens. Ephesians 4.32, forgive one another. Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another. Colossians 3.9, be honest one another. I could, go, I could go on and on with one another. Who is the one another and all of the one another's in the Bible? Who is he talking about? He's talking about the institutional church. He's talking, when Paul talks about the church and one another, he's talking about all the people that they're sitting next to on Sunday morning, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are the one another. You can't fulfill the one another if you have divorced yourself from the body of Christ. One of the uh, most disappointing things that 
I, I feel like I failed as a pastor when um, I, I get in touch with people who have, um, have left All Saints and they moved to another city. And they're le- I ask them, well, what church are you part of? And they, and they say, well, I'm, just, I, I'm not going to church. I, I, I quit on church. Well, that doesn't work. <laughs> not if he's the head of the church. You can't quit on the rest of the body. It's his body. That doesn't work. To quit on the church is to quit on Jesus himself. Like you can't have Jesus and not have the institutional church. It doesn't work. That's who Paul is talking about when he, that's what the Bible is talking about. The group of people that gather on Sunday morning to worship through word and sacrament and celebrate the miraculous point of number six. Okay, we're on number six. What is number six? Jesus is alive. He says he is the firstborn from among the dead. Jesus, this is amazing. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. He's alive. He came alive in AD 33 and he's still alive and that's amazing. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you. You know, I, I, you tell me, well, pastor, I've already heard that Jesus is alive. I'm, I, you kids, you've heard a lot of times, Jesus is alive, right? Jesus is risen. You've been through several Easter's. You, you may or may not have had an Easter bunny visit you. You're like, tell me something new. I want to learn something new. No, no, this, why would I tell you something new? This is the greatest news. He's alive. He's still alive. Uh, I heard one guy quip. It's like come, you come home at the end of the day and your wife says, honey, I love you. And you say to her, tell me something new. No, you don't say that. <laughs> she still loves me. That's amazing. That's incredible. Nobody else does this. He's still alive. We had a few um, people in our church go to Jerusalem this, uh, this summer. They took a trip to Jerusalem um, the, the majors went to Jerusalem and uh, the Stillmans went to Jerusalem. I, you guys made it to Jerusalem, right? I think you did. You know, when, um, so archaeologists and historians have been able to calculate that there were 50 different noted shrines of holy figures who were entombed in Jesus' day, whom people would travel all over to come and pay homage to the shrine where they were buried. Fifty different figures. Very common always in the ancient world. You go to where a significant person is buried. And even today, we know where Muhammad is buried. He's buried under the green dome in Medina, Saudi Arabia. We know where uh, Abraham, the founder of, the, of Judaism and of Christianity, is buried. He's buried in the cave of the patriarchs. We know where the Buddha is buried. He's, his ashes are in a, in a box in the middle of Tibet. God, those of you who went to Jerusalem this summer, where is Jesus buried? Where did they show you? There's no place. There's no place because he's not there. And what was so remarkable to historians of, of the early religions is the Christians did not create a shrine for Jesus' burial. You cannot find the first century burial shrine of Jesus Christ because all they had was an empty tomb. Amen. Where was he buried? Nowhere. Because he's still alive. And friends, this is, what this means is that he is the firstborn of the resurrection, which means he holds the keys to death and Hades. 
Death holds no fear for him, no dangers for him, no grip on him because he has unlocked the door of death from the inside. He has unlocked the prison cell from the inside. So what this means is the chances are that you will die. I think the mortality rate for humans is pretty high. But he has unlocked the prison cell from the inside, which means when you die, you will then only truly step into life. You will truly live. He is the firstborn of many sons and daughters of the resurrection. And we are just waiting to come alive to the true life that God is bringing to us. Number seven. Stick with me. I know it's already past 11 o'clock. But this is good stuff. Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully God. It says, uh, in him all the fullness of the deity was pleased to dwell. Of all the questions that you are ever going to answer, the question of who is your God, that's, that's the most important one. Um, who is your God? You know, Muslims, uh, one of my kids right now is taking a class, um, my soft or, or junior, sorry, Corey, your junior, is taking a class and they're reading, seeking um, Allah, finding Jesus. And she's discovering a lot of the different Muslim arguments about how, well, Jesus, he never claimed to be God. That's what Muslims say. He never really claimed to be God. Yes, he did. John 11, John 10, 33, when they were going to stone and kill him, His own enemies said, we are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Who is your God? Whoever is your God is the one who has authority over your life. And in in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, which means he has all the authority over our lives. Um, To meet Jesus is to be confronted by God. Frederick Matthews Green uh, is sometimes on NPR, National Public Radio. She wrote an article a few years back reminiscing about how she became a Christian. She said, 20 or so years ago, I was a Hindu. I walked into a church on Sunday morning in Dublin, Ireland, and I walked out a Christian. How did that happen? She said, well, Jesus confronted me there. He, He confronted me that morning. He knocked a hole in my ego. I knew at last that I didn't make the world. I didn't know everything. And it was basically time for me to sit down, shut up, and listen to this man who was God and who had authority. That's how it happens when you actually meet Jesus. You stop telling God the way things are and you start listening to him and hearing what he says the way things are. Uh, We think of Jesus, Americans think of Jesus as like a hippie who's strumming strumming a guitar. Um, He's got flowers in his hair. No, no, he, all the fullness of the deity dwells in him. You should think of the hallelujah chorus. You should think of wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, because in him, all the fullness of deity dwells. Amen. Number eight. Jesus is a reconciler. This is fantastic news. Uh, He is a reconciler. How many of you have an arduous relationship, um, just a a totally broken relationship with another person, and and it's killing you? Or how many of you have seen a family feud break out in your family of origin, brother, sister against each other, um, 
mother, son against each other. Um, we, we know those things. That, is, that describes our relationship to God. We are in the most epic family feud ever. We, our relationship with God was severed through Adam. We rebelled against God. We are not at peace with God. We're at war with God. And therefore, we need to be reconciled to God. You ask most people about their relationship with God, and they're like, me and God, we're, we're all good. No, you're not. Our relationship with God is more strained than the worst marriage, the worst family feud you've ever witnessed in this life. And that is why Jesus had to come. It was to reconcile enemies. Verse 20. God sent his son so that through him he would reconcile to himself all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. What this means is that if you don't know the Lord Jesus, if you have never submitted to Jesus, you don't have peace with God. The only way to have peace with God is through the blood of his cross. And what a mighty thing it is that he, the creator, would die for the creature, the enemy. How many of us would die for a family member whom we love? Raise your hand. Would you die for someone you love? How many of us would die for our enemies? What a thing it is that he would take our place. And the only way that we can have peace with God is through the blood of his cross. It is by acknowledging, friend, that you are a sinner and that Jesus is the Savior, it is by acknowledging that either he pays for your sin on the cross or you will pay for your sin in hell. It is acknowledging that the wages of sin is death and that that wage, that debt will be paid. And the only question is, does the eternal God pay that debt or do you pay that debt eternally? Like that's the sobering message of the cross. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you don't belong to Jesus, you've never surrendered to Jesus, you don't believe in Jesus, then this is the place where the great exchange takes place. You give Jesus your sin and he gives you his salvation. Death for life, condemnation for salvation, separation for reconciliation, enemy for friend. And the result is that you're at peace with God and reconciled. Let me conclude with verse 18. All of this, let's read it together. All of this is that, uh, so that, that in everything, we read that in everything, he might have the supremacy. I saw the other day a bumper sticker on the back of a car. You've seen this bumper sticker before. Uh, It says, God is my (laughs) co-pilot. I'm sure the person who put God as my co-pilot on the back of their Taurus um, old car, <laughs> I'm sure they thought they were kind of paying God a compliment. They, they thought they were saying something positive about God, and yet we just hear the sheer lunacy of it. God is my co-pilot. And yet years of pastoring has taught me that most people operate this way. Their heart is their pilot. And God is their co-pilot. Most people do whatever their hearts tell them to do. Or whatever their therapist tells them to do. Or whatever appeals to their own desires. They do what they want first. And not what Jesus says to do. Who do you say I am? Is he a supreme creator? Is he a supreme uh, 
sustainer? Is he a supreme savior and supremely alive? Then hear the words of Jesus. He says to you, take up your cross, die to yourself and come follow me. He says, whatever you do for the least of these, you do it unto me. He says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds, but you've been reconciled by his body through death so that you might be holy. He says, be holy as I am holy and walk in a manner worthy of the calling received. The reason we are on this earth, friends, is so that we might in our lives display the supremacy of Jesus Christ in everything. And that must be our categorical aim. Jesus Christ, who I presented to you this morning, is glorious. Our thoughts of him are far too small. And it's our our task to see him for who he truly is and then to let our lives display his supremacy to everyone else. May God make it so. Amen.